From his Broadway debut in Serious Money to a Tony Award for Billy Elliot, Gregory Jabara has been entertaining stage audiences for more than 20 years. Hello, I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing, and welcome to the Wing's Downstage Center with today's guest, Gregory Jabara. Welcome, Greg. Thanks, Howard. So, Tony Award winner for Billy Elliot. Yeah. Obviously a big moment. And as someone involved in the Tony Awards, I have to say thank you because you have this fabulous website which you have used to thank seemingly every human being you've ever met, which we appreciate you're not doing on the broadcast. <laughs> but but tell me about that list because it's exhaustive. And what prompted you to do that? It, it, and it's still ongoing. It actually, every day I'll go, oh, oh, you know, I remember what I, I need to put their name down or even like their kids of, of people who, you know, who've uh, given up time so their parents can work with me. Uh, so it's, it's a never ending list. I, what was one of the, I was talking to Stephen Daldry and I had said to him, is it, un, is it inaccurate for me to say if Nicole Kidman had not gotten pregnant and then had to bail out of the reader, that then the time frame for Billy Elliot would have moved, would have happened a season earlier, and I would not have been eligible or available to audition for this job. So there are so many factors that are out of my control that all sort of came together that allowed me to have this amazing opportunity of, of doing this role and then subsequently getting the recognition that I have from uh, from my peers and, 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 of course, with the Tony Award. So I, I, I kind of was look, looking, really evaluating the fact that there's so many other people who have touched my life and, and, and had they not done and been who they are and where they were, I, I definitely believe I wouldn't be here today. So uh, I'm trying to rec- – that's the – I think that's the, the the big picture. I'm trying to recognize the fact that it, 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 it really isn't about me. It's about the way the whole universe has sort of helped me get here today. Well, it is interesting. You mentioned the – we'll call it the happy accident of timing, which is so much of of theater and so much of life. You also had to make some choices personally about coming and doing this show. First of all, what – was it that would have kept you from the show had it been done a year earlier? Well, I was happily working, and I also hadn't really suffered through the uh, – well, we had gone through the Writers Guild strike. The real reason I even looked for a job back in New York, because I've been living in L.A. for over 10 years, was I wanted to have the financial stability to ratify a strike for the Screen Actors Guild if that's what was needed in order to get the contract that we needed. I had a purely – Union-related agenda. And, and I didn't have my sights set on Billy Elliot. I had my sights set on any Broadway contract that would at least pay my bills so that when July came around of last year, if all the union machinations had been on schedule and we were asked to ratify a strike, if that's what, what was needed, I wanted to be able to not be afraid to say, yes, we have to stand up for this because this, this contract's lousy. So my real agenda was uh, – to be able to do what I needed to do as a union member for the Screen Actors Guild. Uh, another part of it was uh, weathering the Writers Guild strike, which was two holidays ago, two Christmas seasons ago. Uh, we were living off of savings by the third month and living in Los Angeles, living off of savings. And where the entire town basically was shut down because of the Writers Guild strike. It was, it, uh, it, it was scary and it was not something I cared to live through again. So I was simply... Uh, unlike what I would have done had it been 20 years before and I wasn't a married man, I didn't have children and a mortgage and financial obligations, I'm sure I would have been able to just you know take any job and not worry and, and go willy-nilly. But 
I have a different my, – my life is different now. I can't just take any job for the sake of working. I now have to think about the responsibilities I have as a, as a, as a parent, as a husband, as a homeowner. Uh, so those are all the variables that really came into play. And then the fact that even though I, could, I, I, was, I wasn't even actually in consideration for this role in Billy Elliot – well, they they were not interested in seeing me. Uh, it was my agent's idea. He called two weeks after my wife and I had a meeting and said, we need to really seriously think about you looking at a New York job, which was hard because our boys are finally in a wonderful school back in L.A. And it's a it's a Waldorf charter school. But it, being a charter school, if we take them out, they lose their spot. And it's a, it's a it's a curriculum that when our oldest went to the Rudolf Steiner School here in New York, we were paying seventeen thousand dollars seventeen thousand five hundred dollars for him to go to half day kindergarten, and I can't I can't afford that. I mean that that was like that was a, a treat thanks to Marty Bell and the generosity of the producers of uh, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, which is what I was doing here at the time, but I I, I couldn't afford to keep that up at all, and so the fact that. A half a mile from the house that we owned in Los Angeles, this school, this charter school was opened by friends who I actually did my first musical at the University of Michigan with, coincidentally, and that's a whole other story. But this school existed. My my son has great luck, got a low lottery number, got in. My boys are set through eighth grade. We're staying in L.A. My boys are taken care of. Uh, that was the agenda. And so the idea of me having to come here for work was uh, certainly not a, a, a first choice. It was not a preference. It was a matter of just uh, survival, uh, given you know the climate with all the you know union issues that were happening uh, in the industry. So um, the fact that uh, two two weeks after my wife and I talked about it very seriously, my agent in New York, to whom I said, "Don't after Dirty Rotten Scoundrels," I said, "I'm done." I'm staying in L.A. Don't even don't even tell me what I'm missing out on. I don't want to know. My kids are in this great school. I want to. Just, I'm just going to live in L.A. Do TV and film work, voiceover work, commercials, and just live here and let my kids have a great education. And then, of course, poverty shakes all that up. And and it was the the will to survive. And literally two weeks later, the agent Michael Kelly Boone at at Leading Artists said, "Hey, I know you said don't call, but." Here's a project we think you need to consider. And I was going, oh, this is great because normally after the amount of shows I've done on Broadway, living in L.A. for over a decade, if producers were interested in me for a part, typically a casting director would arrange to fly me back to L.A., put me up for a night like at the Hilton in Times Square. I'd do my audition. I'd fly back. So I said, oh, I'm thinking this is perfect timing. So what's the project? I was Billy. Oh, great. So will they fly me in? Well, actually, they're, they don't really know about you yet. Uh, I said, oh, so they're not asking. No, no, we th- we think we'd like to submit you, but we want to find out if it's something you're interested in. It was like, okay, so the ego was completely you know obliterated there. But I realized, I, okay, I want to I want I want to pursue this as a possibility. Uh, Did you know much about the show at the time? I had seen the film, the and, film, and and of course it opened on the West End the same time that uh, Scoundrels opened in New York. So I was aware of that what was going on with it, and it was a successful show. I'd also spoken with many former employers, uh, uh, Broadway producers who had articulated they had no interest in opening a show. They were, everybody was waiting to find out when was Billy Elliot going to open on Broadway because if they had a new musical, they did not want to compete because it was <laughs> you know, gaining some fantastic momentum. So I was aware of the, the, the powerhouse that it was. Um, but uh, finally, uh, I mean, they originally had insisted, oh, we'll see Greg Jabara, but first we'd like to have him do a, a preliminary audition with the associate director. And I didn't know who that person was at the time, uh, Julian Weber, who... Ends up being an amazing uh, 
is it Ying and Yang? It was amazing Ying to Stephen Daldry's Yang in terms of really directing that show. Uh, actually, I actually thanked Julian and Stephen in my uh, Tony speech. But um, at the time, I was like going, no, I don't know. I normally get to come in, have an audition with the director. You know, I, like, I, I've been privileged in the last 15 years of my life that I've been able to go right into callbacks for the most part, if, 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 you know, once I'd established myself. So I was expecting that same sort of thing. But, you know, Tara Rubin's office and they were going, well, no, they, everybody's got to go through this procedure and everybody rehearsals for a really, auditions for a really long period of time. And I was like going, um, okay, well uh, – I said to my agent, see if he can't get me just to can – we, can we just let them plug me in when Stephen Daldry's there? Because, you know, there's nothing worse than – I mean, I didn't know who Julian was. And you don't want to audition for the – if he's not the final decision maker, it, it could all go away based on his personal opinion. And I wanted to have the opportunity to, you know, uh, to, to do the glad handing and, and the – because it really is the interpersonal aspect of the, of the audition that really gets you the job. It's uh, – there's so many people who have the talent to do it. But – Ultimately, they're assessing you as a as a human being and and as somebody who has the temperament and the personality that they're going to spend the next however many months or years of their lives working with. So there are so many other things that I wanted to be there to make to help make that decision for, and I didn't want it to go away because maybe the, uh, the whoever I had to do my preliminary audition for was you know didn't have the same uh, idea about how right I would be for the role as I did. The the other thing that w- was interesting was um, and I've never. I've never done this before. I haven't had the luxury of doing this. But because Billy Elliot had already been running on the West End and already opened in Australia, after the the eye-opening experience of being the only principal above the title in Dirty Rotten Scoundrels who did not get a Tony nomination, I said to myself, if I'm going to come back to New York and be away from my family for so long, it's got to be a smart business move. And what is it that I – what would really benefit me coming here? Something that could be worthwhile to make it worth being away, and that, and it was to get a Tony nomination would be a great professional accomplishment. So, I was able to research the role of Dad, and he, the character, the actor, did get Olivia, an Olivier nomination, and the actor did get a Helpman nomination in Australia. So, from a strictly business standpoint, before I ever auditioned, I went. This is a good business risk for the things I need to do. On a business level, to justify being away from my family, this is something that's worth pursuing. And then ultimately, after that first hour and a half audition that I had, that I finally was able – they did schedule me in for. Uh, normally, an actor goes into an audition and you know, 25 people or 15 people are sitting behind a table, a panel. And you're alone in the center of the room and you have to show them that you're the guy. And for the first time ever – and not that other directors I've worked with haven't been the same thing in terms of – in the work they do in rehearsals. But for the first time at, at an audition – and maybe it was because I needed to do – there was so much work for me to do to really get closer to who Jackie Elliott ultimately became. Um, but everybody everybody was sitting back behind a table. But Stephen Daldry and Julian Weber grabbed the sides to the auditions and came into the center of the room with me. And read with and you. Pull, yes, and pulled folding chairs out. And it wasn't – it was not me showing them that when we really got down to doing the work, it was the three of us sitting in a circle. And th- there was, you know, hands on shoulders and knees against knees and and real genuine giving and taking. And I felt for the first time that they were working as hard in that audition, proving to me that they could direct me as much as I was trying to prove to them that I could take the direction and be the actor that they needed for that role. 
I'm curious, given, as you just acknowledged, that the show had been a hit in England, had been a hit in Australia, obviously other actors had played the role, they may have seen some different shadings, but how much was there the opportunity for you to make this your interpretation and how much was about them knowing what works in the part? I know that they went, when we started day one, that they were ready to, to completely re-explore every aspect of the show. They knew, of course, they know what works, but they also had a lot of stuff they wanted to change that they never had the time or money to do on the West End production or in Australia. So there were many things. To put it in perspective, normally a Broadway show starts rehearsal. Everybody, there's a big, everybody comes in, everybody's introduced from creative to producers, cast. Then we sit around a table and, and you do a first read-through of a script and then you start work. We didn't do our first introduction and read-through until two weeks into rehearsal because they had so many things that involved scenic changes, that involved script changes. They had so many things that they've been hanging on to for years that they wanted to try that would require building new scenery, building new uh, – most primary scenery, building costumes. There were so many new things they wanted to do that before we ever really jumped into the book and started the structure of working on the play – we spent the first two weeks trying out all the stuff they wanted to do that they just had in their heads they wanted to see. And primarily, one of them involved the use of the pit gates. When Dad, for people who have seen the show, when in the second act when Dad finally becomes a scab, there's uh, the, the ensemble brings on these 800-plus-pound steel gates that roll around and they become the audiences uh, outside the pit gates. Then, it, then the, the, they become the bus that the scabs ride into the uh, pit in and then it be, you, you're suddenly outside the pit gates and it, it, it makes that scene for a much more uh, kinetic uh, storytelling whereas in the West End production as I've been told because I haven't seen it but a, a drop simply comes in with the gates fixed mm. across and a door that swings in the middle and they always just want that was always just too static so that was just one of many things that they wanted to do to, to shake things up so they were looking for change. They were looking for improvement. They did not just sit back and say, look, we know what the show is and how and that this is what works. They uh, they wanted to make it the best it, they could be. So it, within that, they, there was, they really were very generous in allowing all of the actors to make their own contributions to shape the roles in the ways that that we each instinctively felt, you know, we wanted to, you know, uh, interpret those characters. Speaking of change, as we all know, there are multiple actors playing the title role. You're working with, I think, at various times, there's been four or five already we've here. Had, yeah, we've had five different billions. In the, in the U.S. Obviously, the relationship of your character to his son is central. For you as an actor, to have different people opposite you at different performances, how does that affect you? your performance, how do you affect their performance? Because it's not a constant. It's not about growing together all the time with the same actor. You know what I think m helps make it easy is the fact that there's a lot of dysfunction in, in the dynamic of the three men in that family. That, that c communication is definitely not the forte, especially for the father throughout the entire story. So um, there, there is room for the a certain disconnect that can that can exist between the father and the sons that um, there isn't a necessity that I have to feel the fact that there are four Billies at a certain time we had five but every night it's a new boy so I, it allows me to listen to them for the first time 
basically every night. It's not like I know it's coming. Uh, it, it keeps me on my toes, but it helps keep it alive in, in a certain way. But they've all been so uh, well-directed to hit the important story points uh, in the show, the things that must the, – the story that, that Billy must tell. And the, the, But they do – and anyone who's seen the show with – more than one Billy will say, they are uniquely different, each of them. So they're able to bring their own personalities to their performance. But it, it's not a hindrance or it's not a, a hurdle or, or for me to get over. It, it actually ends up making the evening, uh, it makes it my job easier because ultimately it forces me to listen. And ultimately everything they do is is fresh and new to me, so it's easier to play. Um I know I can count on them to do like their physical aspects of the show. The, the things we have to do that we know, you know that are, you know, a lot of the violence is as as choreographed as any of the dance steps, and everyone's really well, well versed in that. So there's never a concern for safety or that that variable falling apart. So there's a lot of freedom to uh, to kind of keep it loose and crazy, and it's actually a gift to have a, a different Billy every night as opposed to something that could get in the way. Often actors talk about the fact that they wish that people in the industry, press, even sometimes Tony voters, um, would see the show later in the run, not right when it opens. Sure. Do you feel you've found more in the character since you opened? It was last November and now here we are. Oh, yeah. Um, Almost in August. Yeah, that, I, I think that's that's always been the case in any job I've ever had. I, I've even been surprised sometimes, you know, because there are so many bootlegs out, right? Uh, that they, you, can, you, you can watch. You know, tragically, we are all allowed to you watch go on our to YouTube and watch yourself. Well, they get the people. You know, fans think you want to see that stuff, so they they'll send you discs. They'll they'll arrive at the theater. Here, I, I here's a, a recording I did. And I'm thinking, oh, okay. I guess I won't send the people after you. To, you know. I mean, it, it, it happens so it's so prevalent now. But um, but I'm often surprised to see the performance that I gave early on because I don't remember those choices because it does evolve, it does change, it does grow. And and fortunately, for me, I've always felt that it's always improved as time's gone on. That it's much you know much more complex, much deeper. But. Uh, I think the fact that, um, especially for our Tony voters, there was the opportunity to see the show three times. Yes. So I, I honestly think that we, our show, benefited from the opportunity of having all the people who are making those award decisions to see the show three different times. I think that's a different experience than people who go and see a show once and then make decisions based on that one experience. I think we all benefited from it. And I, I maybe that does nod to the idea that, you know, later on, because they, they get to see work over a period of time, because I'm sure no, no one came and saw this three nights back to back, because there's no way we could predict that we were going to have, I mean, our Billies have never had, there is a, like a tentative schedule that is given out on a Saturday night, just so everybody can sort of plan their life. But I still, to this day, never know who's actually going to, who's going to be playing Billy that night until like 30 seconds before I drag him on stage at the top of the show. It's literally because they they have they're they sitting on a bench backstage waiting to be called up. Well, there are two of them that show up to each night. So there's a there's a there's a scheduled Billy and then there's a backup, and then even that sometimes falls apart because the the backup will have a cold and the and the primary uh, injures himself in warmups. Hmm. So uh, there 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 are so many variables that you just like people want to go. Oh, I want to know because I really want. I say you know what you can't. 
even if I told, even if I shared with you the schedule that we had, you would be so disappointed because invariably you'd say, "Oh, I want to go see Kirill Coolish that night," and you show up, and it's not going to be him. And, and it's there's just there there's just no way that you can predict who's going to go on. So it's uh, I don't know what the point of that whole. Uh, uh, diversion was but. well, but we can say that normally we talk to actors, and one of the questions is always, uh, you know, how do you keep it fresh every night? Well, my God, if you don't know who you're going on stage with, <laughs> you, you, we know how you're keeping it fresh yeah, it's, every it's, night. Yeah, they're so making it easy for me. We, we got that. Yeah, um, we started talking about Billy Elliot, of course, and you talked about mapping out uh, what this show was going to be, and and at least trying to get a nomination. And of course, you got a Tony. So now let's jump back to where this all came from. Um, you grew up in Michigan. In a, in a working class, middle, very, yeah, middle class town. Very working class. So 15 miles west of Detroit where everyone, everyone I knew and or was related to basically worked for the big three hmm. uh, in the automotive industry, except for my father who was an insurance claims adjuster, but, you know, most of the stuff he handled Mostly was... Mostly for car accidents. Yeah, car, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Motorcycle deaths and car Saw accidents. That coming. <laughs> so um, I do love the fact that on your website, um, you, you do list um, a very thorough early credit that uh, in your first grade school play, uh, you were Frosty the Snowman. Oh, yes. Uh, but did, was that the moment when you said, hey, I like doing this, I want to do this more? After the fact, yes. Oh, you know, when well, Miss Seiko, that was her name. Mrs. McCullough, ultimately, was her name. Uh, she was, yeah, Miss Seiko, and she was my teacher. And they were, you know, is it going to be me or Tom Swim? It was down to us that who's going to play Frosty the Snowman for that production. And because it was like someone, you're going to be sitting, you thinking, that's the, the gig I want. When, in fact, all I ended up doing was being wrapped in white tissue paper. And while the entire class is singing the song on the risers for the rest of the, you know, for the audience in the, in the gymnasium, I am walking back and forth along the front row of the risers. Alive not singing, as he can be. Not, exactly. <laughs> waddling in my tissue paper. And, and I can honestly tell you, I still remember the terror of the responsibility of the unknown. Uh, it was my first time that I was going to be, you know, what I would consider at the, as a five-year-old, I was doing, I was going to be doing a solo performance, not singing, not talking, simply being able to walk back and forth across the stage. I can remember being absolutely terrified, completely terrified. And when it was over, the fact that I was still standing and alive and that I got so many, you know, comment, you know, hugs and kisses and accolades from my family and the people who said, you were such a great Frosty. It was like, oh, so that's what it is. It's like an adrenaline rush, and it's and it's abject terror, and then and then it's this great warm fuzzy uh, sense of accomplishment afterwards. So I can remember that journey of that first experience, but uh, that may that may be in fact where the DNA got switched and and where the need came. It's quite possible. When did you start to pursue a career in theater seriously? Well, seriously. Uh, because I was in, I did every production from when from junior high on. I, I, there were hopes of me being a quarterback for the junior high football team, and I had no interest in actually being injured. I, I played basketball and baseball for the school teams, but not football because it just made no sense. But uh, the, I was wooed by the coach. He said, "Come on, you've got a good throwing arm." I was, I was actually, I was really, really good. But in, in uh, practice, there was a, a, a drill called bull in the ring for the people who know football. Uh, ultimately, uh, you have the ball. You have to try and get out of a circle of your entire teammates. But you can't 
try and go through guys who are smaller than you. So I could only hit big linemen because I was, you know, a tall kid. And they, two of these big guys just picked me up and squeezed me like a, a tube of toothpaste on the ground. The ball came out. We scrambled for Because if I can pick up the ball and make it out the hole where the football, those two guys were, then you've succeeded in your, your, your task. Well, in the scramble, my hand went over the helmet of one of the guys. The other guy's helmet, his face mask, came down over my thumb and crushed it. So uh, I was... I lost. I did not. I did not succeed in the task. I went to pick the ball up, and my thumb was a noodle. I could. I actually couldn't grasp huh. the ball. So my quarterbacking days were uh, done. But then I was able to audition for the fall play that year, and then and that was in ninth grade. I had done the other plays and the other musicals. I think for the previous years, eighth grade, seventh grade. But from then on, uh, the priority became doing the plays and musicals. And I grew up in a community where there was a lot of money spent on the arts. Um, my, my high school principal was uh, initially the band teacher, and then he became principal. So there was a real passion toward fine arts, music, theater, you know, singing, uh, uh, you know, uh, painting. I mean, it was uh, photography. There was a, a real push and, and, oh, and, a, and a appreciation for that. So I was blessed with the opportunity to, to expose myself to everything so that I was able to uh, – know that I had gifts in certain areas of performing. And then – but when it came time to go to college, uh, after, once I was accepted into the University of Michigan, I, I had to settle for a, a major in communications and a minor in physics because the idea of, of a theater major was, was terrifying to my parents because nobody made a living in the entertainment industry. We didn't know anybody. And, and my folks wanted me to feed myself when I got out of there four years later. And at the time that you went, because people, some people know now that University of Michigan has an extraordinary musical theater program, probably didn't ex- wasn't even an option. It, it didn't exist. As a matter of fact, my last year, my third year there, um, Connie Barron piloted and Beverly Rinaldi put together uh, what was the pilot program for the musical theater program. And it was actually founded. They actually said, all right, we like what you guys have proposed. We like what you've done. We are going to start what would have been my fourth year. We will we'll start to offer a musical theater degree. and But it meant my having to stay an additional two years past the four years. Mm-hmm. And that did not appeal to me. So um, I, I ended up uh, ultimately auditioning for the Juilliard School and getting in. But um, uh, Brent Wagner, who now runs the musical theater program. He came in a few years after that and to help, you know, solidify the program. And now it is. It's one of the premier uh, venues for, for getting a musical theater degree. The shift then from Michigan to Juilliard, you just said you didn't want to stay for a couple more years. You had a, how many years at Michigan before you I'd switched had, to Juilliard? Yeah, I was – I'd actually I, – I dropped out the second half of my third year. Okay. That's because I, then – and then Juilliard, three-year program after uh, four that? Four-year program. Four-year program. So what would have been my fourth year at Michigan was my first year. So it took me seven years to get my, my BFA. And I, actually, I'm, I'm, I'm wearing the only class ring from the Juilliard School from 1986 because my parents had said to me when I graduated high school, they said, do you want a high school class ring or do you want a college class ring? And I said, well, let's wait for college because that will cost more and, and I know I'm going to college. So buy me a college class ring. And then when I finally was going to graduate, my, I was in my fourth year at Juilliard and I, I went to the you know student affairs and they said, well, we don't – we haven't offered a class ring in like 15 saying, years. Isn't that a deeply uncool <laughs> thing when you're graduating well, Juilliard well, to go looking for your class it, ring? Nobody was interested. I was like, oh, you're kidding me. I have to have a class ring? My parents promised me one back in 79. So they – 
hooked me up with the distributor who, who originally offered the Juilliard class ring over 15 years before. I went to him and said, look, man, someone's paying for this. I got to have it. And he said, oh, yeah, I'll just I'll, – it's, it's a Balfour and he custom made it and, and it's, it's a one of a kind. There was no other class ring from 1986 at the Juilliard School. From the time you finished Juilliard, how quickly did you get accepted into being a professional actor? I I lucked out. In the beginning of my fourth year, uh, PBS has a series called Live from Lincoln Center, and they did a special called Juilliard at 80, and celebrating the 80th anniversary of the Juilliard School, and they picked five or six students from each discipline within the school, and they each performed live on a broadcast, and I was selected as one of the five or six students from the acting program. And uh, just as you would hope would happen, um, I performed a two pieces. I played um, the Hitler character from The Resistible Rise of Arturo Ui, and I also played uh, the soldier from Translations, Brian Friel's Translations. But it was a live broadcast. I managed to serve both pieces well without embarrassing myself, and literally the next morning, the William Morris Agency... Uh, uh, triad and uh, Brian Reardon at J. Michael Bloom and Associates called the theater and said, we'd like to talk to Greg Jabara. And within two months, I went with Brian Reardon. And uh, he was also someone who I thanked uh, in my Tony speech because he was the man who sought me out and said, I I believe in you and I want to represent you. And he had uh, he was my agent all the way up until uh, he had died of AIDS uh, about 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. So from the lofty realms of Juilliard and PBS, the first major gig is an off-Broadway musical. Would I be correct that your role as Frankenstein's monster was your big break? uh, On stage (laughs) it was, but I had a a more important life lesson that took place. I was – because I was still doing – the, the program. I couldn't take any legitimate jobs until I graduated. But I was able to do uh, commercial work. And I had booked 14 national spots for Norelco. They, I was the voice. They, they had hired these two beautiful people for the on-camera stuff, but they didn't care for the sound of their voices. So they hired me and Lauren Brown to voice their those characters. And, we, and I, ended, I ended up making money like I had no idea existed. Huh. And, and I was still a student. And I missed – and foolishly – Ignorantly, wrote exempt on my W four. Is that what you get? You fill out first, yeah. So my or W twos. What do you fill out? For? I'm not Who, a tax. Guy. I mean, I, I still to this day can't. Talk, but whichever one you fill out when you. you but know, clearly, whatever the form was, you did it wrong. I did it wrong because, and then you assume, oh, it's good. The, the check goes through the agency. They're going to make sure that they get their commission. The appropriate taxes are taken out, and then I get my net payment, right? So I just assumed everything was my my dad, my dad talked to me about sex. My dad talked to me about my folks talked to me about relationships. They didn't say, oh, by the way, when you first get your first job and you're still a student, don't write exempt on your, you know, on your <laughs> your tax forms because they're not going to take any taxes out. But I ultimately owed I had over $30,000 in debt. If you add on what I had accrued from the, that employment, plus my student loan that was still outstanding, and my overextended credit cards, because I just assumed the money was just going to. This campaign took place from like the, for the three months prior to Christmas, and then once the holidays were over, the whole TV campaign ended. The money stopped, and it was uh, it was a real education. Um, Michael Shedler, who is still my accountant to this day, uh, was recommended to me by Brian Reardon because he repped Brian Reardon as well. And he, I went to see him, you know, tax season in 
what would have been 87, uh, February of 87. And I showed him my paperwork and he just looked at me and he goes, well, do you have any money? And I said, about $500 to my name. And he goes, and he, he was sweating. He was so upset for me. He was worried that like, I'm going to go to jail. And, uh, and, and he goes, well, you're going to, owe, you know, you owe like $30,000. And, and I went, well, thank God I'm young. And ultimately, you know, I, that, I've never made that same mistake. Now I always take out more taxes than I ever need. And, <laughs> and you know, when the return is always like Christmas. But that was my education to wor- a working actor and, and, and a huge mistake that was a, a vital – that I managed to survive. And after eight years, dug myself out from under. And the fact that my first jobs were – I, I didn't do any long-run Broadway shows. They were uh, serious money was what the, even well, have I got a girl for you that well, was, I, I want to talk about those shows so right. let's let let's 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 get off your taxes so Frankenstein <laughs> Frankenstein's monster in in have I got a girl for you the Frankenstein musical yeah it was uh Samina de Laurentiis came on the forefront with uh, uh the original nonsense yeah exactly so they, they this was a star vehicle for her to play the nurse who you know resur- who falls in love with Doctor Frankenstein and also the monster and it was just it was the Bride of Frankenstein, a camp musical version of the Bride of Frankenstein and it was it opened Halloween of eighty six and it was my 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 New York Actors Equity Union debut and it was and it was at the Second Avenue Theater which no longer now it's a that's a multiplex cinema but it was originally the Yiddish Arts Theater and it was uh, a venue that at that time was under the management of Mitchell Maxwell who ultimately was my producer on Damn Yankees further down the road but uh yeah that was my first job and it was uh you know I had I had bolts in my neck and I was wearing Later hosen that were a little too tight, but back then I it, it looked good. But it was you know it, it lended toward the camp side of the uh, of the show, and it was it was great fun, and uh, I had v- very uh, fond memories of, of doing that show. Still to this day, um, uh, Dennis Parlato, who was in that production, is also still. I actually just ran him yesterday. Very good friends, um, and I have a lot of really good friends from Dick Gallagher, who had wrote the score for that show, who's no longer with us, but. Uh, uh, he, he for, for many years, even after that, I would always uh, ask Dick to accompany me when I did audition for other jobs because he was uh, very gifted, very special, and helped really make me look good when I went to an audition. Hmm. Only ran for a couple of months. Yeah, actually, I, when they were, they threatened to close, and I said, I'm going to L.A. I'm moving to Hollywood because uh, uh, I had the bug back then. It was also because J. Michael Blue and Associates, my agency, they had an office in, on the West Coast and they really wanted me to come out there because I, you know, uh, young, marketable in, in terms of Hollywood perspective. So uh, uh, they were, they announced the closing date and I said, great, I booked my flight, I got rid of my apartment, I was ready to go. And they said, oh, we'd like to extend. And I'm like going, oh, I... I I can't. I'm, I can't. I'm, I'm going to go. And then the, the, also you got the, uh, well, if you don't do it, we, we probably won't extend. And I'm like going, oh, thank you. I'm Catholic. <laughs> I, I know what kilt is. Uh, but ultimately uh, I left the show, yeah, I guess it would have been right around the beginning of the new year. Huh. huh. And come to think of it, it was Maria Didia who was uh, general manager of that show who – that's the other thing. You know, all these people that you work with, they're all still a part of my life right now. I mean they, that's what's great about this community. It's once you work with so everybody's still your friend. You know what I mean? It's it's like not it's it's like nothing else. It's really grand. You mentioned serious money and and serious money at first 
probably seemed like one of those charmed experiences. You were involved in it first down at the public. It got fairly terrific review Frank, from Frank, Frank Rich. Frank. Um, Which was the reason Joe Papp decided to move it. And so there's the dream. You're in an off-Broadway show. It runs five or six weeks at the public. Right. Frank Rich anoints it. It goes to Broadway. Significant recast. casting changes. It's significantly recast, and in my opinion, under rehearsed. Hmm. There was a time, you know, there was a time frame. I, I think, I think it happened too fast because it. There was a the, the amazing West End cast that included Alan Corduner, who is still a friend to this day, and uh, Linda Bassett and Danny Webb. There was a, an amazing cast, the original West End cast that came over. Uh, and then the ensemble was made up of mostly Juilliard students. We'd all hmm. – um, Max Stafford-Clark, who directed it intentionally, and, and Rosemary Tischler, she said – Max said, i got to get an ensemble together that can work together fast. And, and she said, well, let's just grab some Juilliard kids who all know each other and who spent four years together because you'll get a lot of you know unspoken communication that they can do that will help you know shorthand the job. It was this bunch of us who just lucked out because we all happened to be new Juilliard grads. That it was something that Max needed. We got plugged in. But when the move came to, to Broadway, I was not guaranteed a job. Uh, I had to re-audition for Max. Hmm. Uh, it was not a given. All of us actually and some several of the ensemble members did not get offered to do the move. And then the majority of the roles except for Alan Corduner, I think he was the only Brit who was allowed to stay because he had the paperwork to stay and work in the States. But it was replaced with dynamite actors. I mean uh, Alec Baldwin, Johnny Pankow – Michael Wincott, Wendell Pierce. Uh, Kate Nelligan joined Kate, the show for Broadway, right? Kate Nelligan did. Yeah, this is all the cast for the West End production. I mean, for the Right, for the Broadway production. Right. They replaced all the, the Brits that were let go. So the, the only, I mean, really the only logical misstep was that it, it, it was all put together too fast. Hmm. There just wasn't enough time to really uh, allow it to settle before it was put up on its feet and then and then re-reviewed. And, and, you know, you can't – I mean, that, that's, that's, that's a hard thing to do. When you've got a cast who, you know, has been doing it for how long on the West End, they bring it over. They live it. They know it. I mean, this is their, this is their culture. And then we are trying to replicate. And it, it, I, I just felt it, it needed more time before it was, you know, put under the, the microscope of the critics. Because ultimately, sadly, it only ran about two weeks from the time it opened. Yeah. After it opened, it, did it – I don't even know that it ran two weeks, did it? Yeah, about that. Uh, yeah. So. yeah, it was a shorty. So that's yeah. that's uh, that's really a shame. Yeah. Um, next up, an off-Broadway gig, Privates on Parade. Another British thing. What is it with me and the Brits? What is that? <laughs> I wonder if – well, I'm half Irish, but that's not – even they won't even claim Great Britain anymore. Uh, that's, that's crazy. Uh, yeah, Privates on Parade, Jim Dale – uh, another show, honestly, that was spectacular. Simon Jones and Donna Murphy, naked. That's all I'm going to say. Yes. <laughs> Pinch me. It was Donna Murphy naked. Uh, you've never seen. We were down. It was when the roundabout was down at the, the old Union House, the theater yeah, on Union the, Square. Union Square Theater now. And, uh, and they, you know, we'd be in rehearsal. or Actually, we'd be running the show. And then suddenly, at that time when Jim Fife and... Donna Murphy are naked on stage. All the maintenance employees from that building all happened to find themselves in the wings of the theater. Don't know how or why that happened, but it was uh, yeah, that was a great production. Had a lot of joy, but there we and we actually expected it because of the cast, you know, with with Jim and Simon, that it would get a move because it was a really really good production. But I guess no one felt that the the English 
war dilemma was was interesting enough. Uh, I thought it had many wonderful elements to it that you know would have given it some weight, and it it was well received and did well in its off Broadway run. But yeah, that was one of those shows that that did not uh, was not anointed to be moved. But I guess given what happened to Serious Money, maybe that's a a, a blessing. Hmm. And I actually got the chronology backwards. You did not jump directly from that. Um, you were involved in Born Yesterday before uh, oh, before yeah. that. Actually, um, right. It was Serious Money that got me. Um, Josie Abadie, who directed the Born Yesterday, uh, told me. She goes, I saw you in the ensemble of Serious Money, and that's why you're here with this audition. And and I said, and half because I'm also Lebanese because Josie's also Lebanese. So it was a little bit of that Lebanese mafia, but also the old, you know, the adage, work gets work. So the exposure, even though it was as an ensemble, featured ensemble member in that show, she went and saw it and, and it ultimately got me that job. And that was, you know, I, I, had, the, I had a mad crush on Madeline Kahn. She was, she's dreamy. And, and Ed Asner too. He's he, he still to this day. I mean, I've worked with him how many times since then? But he also, you know, I, I, I was not a political person at all, but it was during the 88 um, uh, presidential election. And so he, and he was very active. So it was it was a real – and we were in Washington, D.C. So I got to go with him and become much more aware of, of the machine that is politics, that is the presidential campaign. It, it, was a, it was a really invaluable education just for me personally outside of the work of doing the show because we had done several – how many venues? We we played several stops. You did some tours because I saw you in Hartford. Yeah, we played Hartford. We played we played Washington D.C. We opened at the Cleveland Playhouse. Uh, we had several venues before we came into New York, and then um, and then it did quite well. It was it was what is now the in the Heights is there. What do they call that theater now? The Richard, the Richard Rogers. Is that the Richard Rogers now? But I think at the time it was the Forty Sixth Street Theater. Yeah, when we were there, and also back with Serious Money, it was at it was the Royale. When I was there, and now it's the, is it the was it the Jacobs? I never remember the, which or, became or the which. <laughs> I think it's the Jacobs now. Yeah, so you know the names change, but the theaters are are, are still there. But that was uh, that that was a great that was a great job. And I love that. You say that you were in the ensemble. You were also understudying. I actually understudied uh, the the role oh. of cousin Eddie, and um, he only missed. One day, a Saturday for a wedding. So I got to actually go on in the role of Cousin Eddie uh, for two shows, which was, a, which was a real treat. But otherwise, I was the bellhop and the boot black. And uh, it was, uh, you know, it was a, it was a great uh, – uh, Franklin Cover was in the show. Uh, it was a really great group of people. Hmm. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. We've got a lot more ground to cover with not too much more time. So, so let's keep rolling on. Sure. Uh, Damn Yankees. Damn Yankees. Well, I, I also – I thanked James Raitt in my Tony speech because James Raitt was the musical director on that show. And he also was the person who wrote all the musical aspects to Forever Plaid. And it was my life in Forever Plaid that got me my job in Damn Yankees. Because you'd been doing Forever Plaid. You'd done multiple companies in multiple I, locations. New York and then toured all over the country, played many venues and then also in Japan. Uh but How did it, it go over in Japan? It was we were rock stars. <laughs> it was insane. What was amazing is that those fifty, you know, those four part harmony songs are, are still a part of their sort of pop consciousness. They, they everybody knew the lyrics to the songs. Everybody sang along. It was insane. I, we felt like we were the American version. It was sort of the counter story. We were like the Beatles coming to. I, I don't know. Maybe just because it was American musical theater that they all, but they were so incredibly. Uh, uh, 
gracious and 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 they scream like like the girls scream for Rob Pattinson. It's it's uh, <laughs> it's insane. <laughs> Honest to God, it was like nothing. It was a great. It was a, it was ten days of being a rock star in Japan. It, it was it was mind blowing and it was great fun. They. You know, they, they super titled the show, so they were able to, you know, read along as we were doing the show in English. But um, one of the stops, that we, our, the cast that I had worked with primarily was uh, Michael Winther and Neil Nash, Paul Bonato, and myself. And we sort of vowed that we would always stay together. Uh, we had originally done it at the Forge Theater. While the, initial, while the original guys were still doing the show for virtually nothing at Steve McGraw's, they opened at the, at the Forge Theater, and we, and we were making real money. And then we played like the mechanic in Baltimore. We got paid real money in the Coconut Grove. We got paid like touring money while those guys were still working for peanuts. Uh, ultimately, they fortunately were uh, – Stuart Ross had shared a percentage of the royalties with the original cast to help create it, which, which was a great gesture. And I'm sure it took the edge off of the fact that there was another <laughs> cast out making bigger dough while they had you know busted their hump. But it was the fact that we had done the show at the um, Old Globe in San Diego and got to know Jack O'Brien and he got to know our work. And it was actually Michael Winther and I both uh, were cast in the uh, um, in, in that Broadway production, revival of uh, Damn Yankees. But it was that relationship that helped allow that to happen. And that was a blast. You know, Robbie Marshall choreographing and uh, Jack O'Brien with whom I had the privilege of working again – Later in uh, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, if, if Jack O'Brien started a church, I would join it. He's he's an amazing, charismatic, gifted, insightful director, and uh, and I, I didn't think there was going to be anybody like him until you know Stephen Daldry came along. But hmm. uh, I've been blessed with uh, with my um, the people I've had the privilege of working with. Now I wasn't able to determine when you did Damn Yankees. Right. You're in the original cast. Were I, you still in it? I did it when? for five weeks with Jerry Lewis. Okay. I mean, yeah. no no disrespect to the original company, but I got to no. ask, no, what's it like doing a show with Jerry Lewis, oh, who'd never done a Broadway show before? Jerry Lewis, and, and I, I, you know, I got to do the first five weeks with him. So for him, it was like, it was all still brand spanking new. He was awesome. He was spectacular. And I, and I learned a really important business skill from him, which was the power of learning everyone's name the first time you're introduced to them. I watched... How everyone he met immediately respected him because he took the time to know everyone by their first name. Literally, the second day he was at work at the Marquee Theater, he was calling everyone by their first name. And I can't I, – I got to watch how powerful that was. And it's something I really make an effort to do in everything I do because people just want to be – Appreciated as people, and and, as, and when someone's called by their name as opposed to "Hey you" or "Excuse me, please," it's like a whole different uh, level of intimacy in it, and it's it's empowering. And I, I, I'm still to this day grateful to Jerry for for learning that. But he's also he's one of these guys. I was in Vegas doing Chicago, playing Billy Flynn. I get a phone call from him. Hey. I hear you're in town. I'm over. We should get together. I mean, he's that kind of guy. Jerry Lewis is. He stays connected. Huh. He's a really uh, – it blows me away. And, and you know, the, the coolest thing was I went from Damn Yankees. So I'm doing the show with Jerry Lewis at night. During the day, I'm rehearsing with Julie Andrews and Blake Edwards on Victor Victoria. And if when I was eight years old trying to avoid to get to church and waiting, procrastinating the last minute and I'm sitting there watching TV and you're watching Jerry Lewis movies or old Julie Andrews. I mean, if you had said when I was eight, well, one day you're going to be working on Broadway with both of them at the same time, you never would have conceived that. It was like – it was a 
great. It was such an amazing time, my career, that I had the privilege of working with all those people. And at the same time, it was it was crazy. I can remember Jerry saying to me, will you, will you bring me to rehearsal? I want to go see Blake and Julie. And it's me escorting Jerry Lewis into the 890 studios, taking him in rehearsal. And then, of course, you know, the whole room just stops and the rehearsal just stops. And it becomes like... The, like the powerhouses of Hollywood are, are, you know, hanging in the middle of the room and talking. Everybody's just like watching, like we're being voyeuristically you know, watching some like major historical event going on. It was crazy. It was great. When you've got icons like that in the room with you, let's let's talk about Julie Andrews now. Okay. I mean, again, you and I are about the same age. We grew up with all various ones of her films, her hits, her flops. At what point? Can you just stop going, oh, my God, it's Julie Andrews, and just get down to work? She does that. She did that. Jerry did that. Blake Edwards does that. Stephen Daldry does that. They they immediately set the tone. But I can remember the first day of the first day of rehearsal for Victor Victoria, and Julie Andrews is wearing jeans that are really well fitted. And let me emphasize well. She's wearing like this like this um, Oxford shirt, kind of blousey thing that's semi-opaque and she's wearing a really, I'm, I'm going to be honest, a really sexy bra underneath that you can tell is got like floral patterns to it. She, she's looking, I'm being honest now, I'm sharing a, 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 she was hot and I'm thinking, I'm going straight to hell because <laughs> I'm getting excited about Maria Von Trapp here or Mary Poppins. You know what I mean? I want Mary <laughs> Poppins right now and uh, this is so wrong. I, I, can't, I couldn't get over how absolutely radiant that woman was. And se- she's sexy, lovely, generous. The crazy thing now is my wife, Julie, is closer to Blake and Julie Andrews are now than I am. It's like if and when we communicate, it's, it's, you know, it's not about me anymore. It's my, my wife because she – they were they – were, my wife is an adopted child and they had a real bond when they were – because they have two adopted children. The Edwards do. And my wife was really helpful with books and insight and stuff and they had a lot of stuff. They did a lot of sharing of ideas about, you know, stuff to help, you know, their family life because Blake and Julie had lots of questions about as their kids were growing up, things to expect and my wife was very, very, very helpful with them. But they're still they're still a part of our social life. I mean, we don't hang, but like you know, uh, we get phone calls, we get letters. Blake's working on a musical that if I wasn't doing this, I'd be back in L.A. workshopping his uh, Big Rosemary with uh, Katie Huffman. Uh, they're still a part of my life. It's like it's kind of crazy. As I look quickly, and I hope I don't make a mistake here, was Victor Victoria in fact other than than the Frankenstein musical a while back? Victor Victoria was your first opportunity to create a role in a wholly new show on Broadway. That was. Uh, um, yeah, I'd say that's accurate. And so were there opportunities in there, certainly when you've got Blake Edwards who had done the film and and was doing the adaptation? Um, were there adjustments? Were you able to have input well, into the part you played? Yeah. Well, originally there was a song that uh, that Squash, my character Squash Bernstein and Toddy, played by Tony Roberts, they had a duet, but it, it, that that w- was wisely cut from the show. Uh, and then ultimately, my character had no song ever, and it was kind of <sighs> it was a little disappointing that um, I'm I'm doing a musical and I'm not singing at all. And it wasn't until after the show had already tried out in Minneapolis and we were in Chicago, and um, 
it was a uh, they decide they, they reconceived the finale of the show and said, wouldn't it be great if, in addition, all these discoveries that Toddy makes about Squash Bernstein, he's not just a retired football player, he's not just an, an intellectual who plays chess, he's also and gay, he's also a singer. So they said, how would you like you know how about we give you like you know a little Pavarotti on acid G at the end of the finale to sing and and I was like you know I'll take it that would be fantastic because at least I'll have a moment to sing a thrilling you know note and and it was and you know people always talk about yeah and you had that note at the end and and it was like you know it was like the least amount of singing I ever had to do in a show and yet it it was a it was a nice little sort of uh, a feature and surprise for that character so people listening to the cast album should listen for your note not your song it's literally the last uh, you know 20 seconds of the entire cast album yeah yeah you're not on the cast album oh yeah Yes, I am. I'm that G at the very end. How yeah. great. How great. Well, again, another new musical, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. I read that they were originally thinking it was going to be a part for Dennis O'Hare. Oh, it originally was. And um, certainly physically we don't always think of you and Dennis for the same parts. Not at all. It, it was uh, – but he had other obligations and had his sights on, on other jobs. So then the, the part came open. And I can remember auditioning. I drove down to the to the Old Globe, and I looked on. You know, the lady was sitting there at the outside the the rehearsal space, and I I could see the the list of the people auditioning. And I literally was the only person whose name I didn't recognize. Everybody else in that list had either started a film or had their own TV series. I mean, they had like names up the wazoo all auditioning. Although some of them said offer only, like there were names on the list that they weren't going to show up, but they were on the list of consideration. But they were only there for an offer only. Uh, but the song, the duet that Joanna Gleason and I ultimately did, Like This, Like That, first day of rehearsal, it, it was a half a page, maybe an eighth of a page, paragraph that said, and uh, Andre and Muriel will in some form musically realize that there's an attraction. Uh, and then that's what it said. And it, that lived like that for probably, probably until a month before first preview, maybe less, three weeks before first preview in San Diego. Yazbek had not yet written that duet. So there's the danger that it could have ended up being just another G for you. It could have been. <laughs> right. Especially when the other song that I had, uh, Chimp in a Suit, was also hanging in the balance because it, it was a big it, – it was not realized in San Diego in the same way that it had been when it came to uh, Broadway. And me personally, I still wish we could have had the time to, to re-explore that number. But um, – yeah, it could, it could have it could have been a, a very yeah, but but you know, Yazbek just uh, channeled um, his muses and uh, and out came this amazing, beautiful, smart, sexy little love story that happened in that duet that was you know ends in that waltz that's absolutely thrilling as the whole world goes away literally scenically and it's just the two of them uh, you know on the stairs. It was it, it was definitely. Um, a high point to be able to share that time with Joanna on stage. Well, if it came far into rehearsals, did David ever talk to you about how much the song may have been modeled on you and Joanna specifically? Oh, he and uh, Jeffrey Lane both said that they really completely everything got rethought once you know the essence of what it was that I was bringing to the role because they had ideas about what they wanted, and I was I was a little, I was I was different than. It was just making different choices than than what they'd remember from that Dennis had brought to this. So they did. They they chose to go a, a, a different direction, and and they did. They, I think they really took a lot of care and um, and tailored the character to, that was closer to something that I was you know hoping to present on stage. Hmm. 
Well, coming back full circle now to Billy Elliot, you are back on Broadway. You told us at the beginning of the conversation that, you know, there were a lot of rationales that made you decide to be on Broadway again when you'd said you weren't going to be. So that begs two questions. How much longer are we going to see you on Broadway? And are you going to be open to coming back again anytime soon? Well, so I so I know that we, we now know that I'll, I'll never say never because there are always variables that are out of our control and, and the gods are always pushing us in directions that you, you don't know until they happen and then you go, thank you. Uh, but um, I, I'm currently under contract till October 1st. I have no interest in leaving this job. It is honestly the greatest, most gratifying job I've ever had. Um, but of course, m- my desire would be to have a, a nice steady – uh, television gig back in Los Angeles, so I can sleep in my own bed in the house that I built. Uh, that I also miss almost as much as my family. Um, so uh, the uh, ideal would be to be able to, you know, parlay the attention that I've been getting over the last month uh, into some work. And there are there are projects I've been connected with uh, back in LA that literally got a shot in the arm because of June seventh, and, uh, and and that's amazing. I also, for the first time ever. Two days after the Tonys got a phone call and they said, we'd like you to play Lena Olin's husband and Rob Pattinson's father in uh, the film Remember Me and you'll start working in a week and a half. Would you like to do it? And it was like, that's never happened. I've never had – I've always had to, you know, I've had to earn my jobs. I've had to go audition for them. And thanks to the wisdom of uh, my agent, Diana Dusan and uh, Rich Mento, the casting director – they uh, and, and Alan Coulter, the director's generosity and ability to cast from tape. Uh, that was the first time I've ever had a straight offer for a film. And I just finished – I just wrapped shooting that Friday. So um, I, I know that there's there's uh, that, that there's that there are things percolating out there for me outside of the show. But un- until something concrete can settle me back into L.A., I'm going I'm to stay with the show as long as I can, Billy Elliot. Well, that's great to hear, and thanks for spending time with us today on Downstage Center. Thank you, Howard. We want to thank our friends at CUNY TV in partnership with the CUNY Graduate School of Journalism for their assistance with the production of Downstage Center. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding you that all of our programs and media work are available online, on demand, for free at americantheaterwing.org. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you at the theater.